ตัมมะสัมพุทธัสสะนะโมทัสสะภะคะวะโทอะระหะโทสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะอะภะรุทธะเดชังมะทัสสะทะวะระอิสุรวันทะบะมุนจันทุ
or commandments given to us uh, we're intimidated into into uh, acting a certain way because of fear of punishment but the but in this way this this isn't this is uh, we ask to be trained under these precepts so then 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 the intention for our life now is to try to use the limitation that we find ourselves in for mindfulness not as some kind of asceticism to kind of uh, kind of punish ourselves or purify ourselves in some way but to uh, use it as boundary as criteria as standard precepts uh, that we've asked for and then we we have then we can use that in order to contemplate our own impulsivity or uh, character tendencies as uh, you know, modern society you know society doesn't isn't that committed to precepts and modern life is very much uh, an exercise in in rights and freedom uh, where the boundaries become increasingly uh, vague and uh, uh, one doesn't quite know that there are any after a while except there's certain you know there's certain laws that you get punished for if you break them but but even they uh, often aren't really inhibiting people from following impulsive behavior And renunciation uh, is uh, is uh, can be misunderstood in, in in our society. Easily understood as like some kind of moral condemnation or some kind of contempt for the world, uh, and therefore we renouncing it is is one way of looking at it. And that we, we just hate the world and materialism and and uh, we're renouncing it out of aversion and disgust for it or we, relinquishment renunciation can be seen as a, as simplification when you when you live in a in a kind of alms mendicant way and in a uh, under uh, moral uh, precepts and and the nekama uh, renunciate precepts then uh, then it means that our, our options for uh, for distraction and pleasure and so forth are limited and that helps us to reflect on on our own tendencies our habits our emotional habits and uh, our physical habits, speech habits, and not to, to uh, not to uh, condemn or make uh, uh, criticisms about our habits, but to be able to get some perspective on them, so that uh, a precepts is a standard uh, part of a tradition. It's not anybody, any one individual's uh, idea or plan, is it? is part of a whole tradition that traces its lineage back to the Lord Buddha. So it has a kind of power in the fact that it's not a somebody's bright idea, but it has kind of a, a long history behind it. It's not New Age or, or my, my idea. Morality is is uh, is our right. They look at the moral precepts as these are our right. We have the right to to live in a moral way. Uh, 
these are uh, these are important rights to respect, and we respect each other's right to live under these moral precepts. Uh, so then, this is uh, we're looking at it, rights uh, because so many people talk about rights, uh, and oftentimes the rights are uh, you know endlessly kind of. What I want, my right to think and do and act and say and whatever, it can go into a kind of an endless obsession with with demands for yourself alone, for your own individual pleasure or, or attachments, and so oftentimes individual rights can uh, has a much boundary, but just an endless obsession with with one's selfish demands on the society and on other people. Whereas the, uh, the moral right, this is for the welfare of oneself and for the welfare of the community here, the welfare of the society. It's not just I'm being moral uh, just for myself alone, but the moral, the moral, my morality has a good effect on the uh, community and then on the society. So establishing this in in uh, structures like in traditions, you've got hierarchical structures senior, based on seniority, and and uh, and so these are uh, you know. You know uh, Teachers and Taras and Mahateras and and Ajans and and all these kind of things uh, that that uh, you know have some kind of authority <clears throat> are in positions of, of authority. But no matter what, our, no matter how much authority we have, we have no rights to uh, to. Uh, force you to break the precepts so that's your you have that's your that's a, a right that you have that you must uh, hold to and not let anyone uh, influence you otherwise no matter who they are and so this often obviously in, in various religious communities or uh Cults or traditions or whatever, the, 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 these kind of things aren't made very clear. So, the kind of moral rights are not not encouraged or suggested or anything. So, then it's we we empower authority figures with with all kinds of uh, projections of, from our own mind, uh, and oftentimes. Uh, that can be taken advantage of. As we hear the endless melodramas and scandals of various uh, cult figures and gurus and teachers and groups that get very confused because the, the, uh, it's not clear. Uh, the, the, the line of responsibility is not made clear. Now this tradition is something that has uh, it's based on Buddha Dhamma Sangha rather than on uh, charismatic teachers, gurus and so forth. So in Theravada there, there's no kind of taking refuge in a guru. Well, I think in other traditions there there is. Uh, the guru is is uh, held up very high, and 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 is often taken as a refuge. But in the, uh, I've never heard that. I mean, I, well, there's a tendency maybe to uh, uh, elevate certain uh, monks uh, because of respect and uh, so forth that we might feel for them, but. In the actual tradition itself, there's the Buddha Dhamma Sangha. So, the Buddha is our real guru. 
this sense, this Buddha. Then Dhamma Sangha, this 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 uh, sense of refuge, as I've talked about it many times, it kind of encouraged to develop it. You have to cultivate it, especially when you when you're coming from from uh, a non-Buddhist culture into uh, and uh, and uh, say as a mature uh, member. Uh, where we uh, decide to take on some kind of Buddhist training. We might intellectually appreciate the idea of Buddha Dhamma Sangha, but uh, still the intellectual uh, images are abstract. They aren't in the heart. So the Buddha is, uh, say, taken into the heart. Now, how do you do that? You can't just make yourself do it. And it's, not just, it's not a willful act or an intellectual, uh, grasping some intellectual concept of Buddha. But the, like the, in, in with devotional practices, where you begin to work more on, a, on the heart level, where the, the sense of, uh, say, gratitude and and where you contemplate Buddha, just even the historical Buddha, the Gautama the Buddha, appreciating the, the, the fact that, that he was so skilled and so wise that he established a tradition that is still, still going 2,500 years later. This is a tradition that that is one of the oldest, probably the oldest existing monastic tradition. I'm open to any corrections, <laughs> but uh, I don't know of any older ones. Maybe the Jains, but it is. Uh, I'm not trying to say we're, you know, I'm not insistent we're the oldest, but we're certainly quite ancient. In, and, and we regard the lineage as a direct, direct lineage to the Gotama, the Buddha. So it's not, the lineage isn't traced back to a, a, a guru or a teacher after the Gotama, the Buddha, but to the uh, Shakyamuni Buddha, Gotama, the Buddha. Then there are various uh, critics about the same when we talk like this. They say, well, how do you know that it's a direct lineage? Maybe it's changed. And it's not apostolic succession, by the way. <laughs> it's not, not like apostolic succession in, in the Catholic Church. But it's, it's, uh, it, it, there was one critic a few years ago who was trying to uh, dismiss all Theravadan ordinations as being... Uh, Corrupted, and so there's no real true bhikkhus left in the world because the 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 real purity of the lineage was destroyed hundreds of years ago or whatever, and and uh, therefore we're not real bhikkhus anyway. And this is this is from somebody who had an axe to grind about bhikkhus. So, uh, and this. Uh, Made a case, wrote a special book on this subject, but it doesn't matter, does it? We're not looking for. I mean, who can prove one way or the other? <clears throat> and uh, that's not the point. Not the point. That some kind of historical accuracy is necessary, but the fact that we, they in this uh, lineage, we do. Uh, Try to live. Uh, we use uh, the suttas and the vinaya, abhidhamma, and uh, that we regard and generally regarded in the development of Theravada Buddhism as what was taught and by the Lord Buddha, what was established by the Lord Buddha in India two thousand five hundred forty-two years ago.
Well, just thinking in in that way, uh, on a devotional level, not on whether it's historically accurate or, or or trying to, you know, find fault with that view, but but to me that that what I've just said uh, as a you know kind of inspires my mind. I feel it makes me feel uh, a lot of respect, a lot of gratitude towards the the Buddha himself because I uh, value very much uh, the teaching and and the enormous benefits of my own life you know uh, amazing transformation uh, just practicing uh, the teachings of the Lord Buddha at this time in modern Britain so it's uh, something that I feel uh, gratitude for. This is one, one this, uh, this is by contemplating this way then the heart kind of, you feel in your heart gratitude comes from here rather than it's not just a, a perfunctory uh, kind of thanks from the head. Then uh, then the uh, and as you, and then just the, the lineage itself, having ordained in Thailand and, and, and been given that lineage, you know, being included, say, going to Thailand as a foreigner uh, and not knowing what to expect, you know, what would, how would they regard a, a, a foreigner? And would they let a foreigner into the Sangha? You know, I didn't know when I went there. Not that they had, a, you know, very fixed ideas about who they'd let ordain, and and, uh, and a foreigner who who didn't know all that much about Buddhism, but they were very uh, generous and uh, very encouraging and very supportive in every way. So that, that brings up gratitude. And just the. Uh, the the joy and the generosity that is extended to me when I uh, asked to become a monk in Thailand. You feel it in the heart, isn't it? You feel this this uh, gratitude. Then my upachaya, who's still alive, the the abbot of the of a very famous temple in Thailand, Wat Tat Panom, in northeast Thailand. And uh, my teacher, Ajahn Lumpur Cha, and so there's so many monks uh, and lay people and so forth that one feels uh, this, uh, this gratitude. And it extends, it kind of extends here to, to the UK, gratitude to, the, to this country, because to allow Buddhist monks to live here unmolested with, <laughs> and, and respected and, and, and uh, uh, without being uh, despised or persecuted. So one feels an increasing sense of gratitude uh, for all the good things of one's life that that have led one to live uh, in this skillful way and to develop uh, without having to endlessly fight a system or or you know living in in just uh, dire poverty and just you know difficult and uh, and kind of hopeless situations it seems like in the actual one side decided to become a monk, doors opened wide for me, everywhere. Life was getting very difficult for me before I became a monk. And nothing was working well for me. <laughs> and uh, then after I became a monk, suddenly everything started opening up. Wide doors that suddenly, where I thought there weren't any, suddenly appeared out of nowhere and opened double doors wide. 
I didn't have to squeeze through narrow, narrow apertures or anything. So I'm grateful for that. <laughs> this is just an example of, of contemplating uh, the goodness of one's life. Where the sense of the Buddha is, is being taken into the heart. And uh, then in terms of a real refuge in Buddha is to contemplate Buddha as refuge here and now, Bhutto, awareness, isn't it? That's this awareness, awakenness. So Buddha is a practical refuge, not just a a, a, a sense of gratitude to uh, uh, a brilliant sage that died uh, 2,500 years ago, but it's a, it's a, it's a, it's here and now, a live refuge. It's not just a a concept or a abstraction or an exotic word. It's when you bring it into the heart. It's this sense of this is awareness. That could that's what Buddha is. Buddha is the awakened one, or that which is awake in all of us. When when we're awake, then that's the Buddha. We're not the Buddha as a individual, but that state of awakeness. That's that's that that will get you through all difficulties in life no matter what happens to you. So it is a refuge. And it's not dependent on, uh, on benevolent conditions. And the doors aren't open. Or even the doors are tiny. And you, have to, and you can't quite fit through them. You can still take refuge in the Buddha. Uh, the awakened state. The here and now. So that's where this Bhutang Sarnangachami, take that as a, really contemplate that. I'm encouraging this, this because uh, when you're part of a tradition and, uh, and you, you see, you, you, you use these words a lot, oftentimes they, they, we can just say them and not really appreciate what we're saying. They don't come alive for us. You can just, Chanting can just be a parrot-like uh, copying of sound. Or it can be through reflection, through contemplation, it become, you begin to, to uh, realize or recognize the reality behind the words. And the, the Buddha and Dhamma, these are, the Buddha knows the Dhamma, knows the truth of the way it is. So, so this, this sense of knowing, Buddha is this awakened awareness, awareness knows the state of knowing the Dhamma, the way it is. So, so the, the refuge, second refuge in, in the Dhamma, Tamang Sernangachami, they take refuge in the Dhamma. So the way it is, and of course we are, in this winter's retreat, we're contemplating the way it is. The truth of the way it is, and this is, this is of course, the, well, what way is it then? Tell me. <laughs> is it, well, if I told you, would you believe me? <laughs> so, 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 some would, some wouldn't. Ajahn Samino says the way it is is everything's green and blue. <laughs> and others would say, no, he's got it all wrong. That's not the way it is. But the way it is, is, is through this awareness, not through uh, grasping uh, ideas or concepts of the way it is. 
So the Buddha knows the way it is. He knows the conditions for what they are and knows the unconditioned. Knows the sankharas, knows the dhamma. Uh, this knowing, isn't it? It's a direct knowing. I'm talking direct knowing, not not kind of knowing about, but knowing the reality. So we can know all about Dhamma by reading Dhamma books and uh, and still not know the Dhamma. So so in uh, so in knowing the Dhamma, it's it's this. This is very direct, very simple kind of knowing, but a kind of knowing that. It's generally overlooked in the world because there's so much emphasis on knowing about everything, trying to know about all kinds of things. And so, in the in the moment now, knowing this moment, knowing uh, the you know the the whole. Uh, Buddhist teaching is around the satipatthana, the observing, you know, witnessing too, the the way things are, the body, the the the, the sensitive, the sensitive state that we're in, the vedana, the the jitta, the dhamma, the four foundations of mindfulness. You explore, you investigate, contemplate these as in the present, not as not as interesting Buddhist teachings, but as, as how they apply to what you're actually feeling and thinking and experiencing right now, like this. So whatever you're thinking, feeling, or experiencing right now, if, you, if, you're, if you're feeling nothing right now, at least, you know, in the state of awakened awareness, you know, the feeling right now is no feeling, like this. So I mean, it's it's not that you have to uh, look very deeply and try to find something special. It's just whatever you're conscious of at this moment, you're aware. It's like this. And you're not looking for something special or something very deep and profound within yourself because then you then you know if you start from that trying to find something uh, that you conceive first or something that you think uh, is is significant you, you're not aware of what you're doing you're caught in some some plan some idea again so we just start from the way it is even if it's shallow and silly and uh, you know, seemingly useless. Just to be aware of that is a direct knowing. We begin. We, so it's very, you know, it, it isn't. Uh, it isn't complicated. Very. It's very simple. But can be completely dismissed because uh, our minds are very highly conditioned to complicate and. And uh, to to expect and demand and and uh, look for all kinds of things uh, that we we preconceive. So to be able to trust just this pure state of knowing, direct knowing in the present, is, takes a while. A kind of a surrendering and a and a humility because it, it isn't doesn't sound all that you know brilliant or or terribly important. Lung Pa Cha said, told me himself, he said when he first started meditating, he, he, he thought his teacher was trying to make him stupid. Before he studied the Bariati Dhammas and passed the examinations to the, uh, for the uh, Bariat, for the uh, scholastic Dhamma, and and uh, he was he's quite an intelligent man, so he did quite well on that level. And he went and trained in a, in a, in a forest monastery. And he said he felt the teacher was just trying to make him stupid. <laughs> because he, all his kind of 
cleverness didn't, wasn't, wasn't particularly getting in the way of his, of that direct knowing. Because he's obviously, you know, wound up in his own, with, with his own uh, cleverness. But reflection is uh, this sati sampachanya, awareness, reflecting, uh, investigating, examining. These are words that are used a lot in in the scriptures, and so it is a you know it is then to do that to investigate and to examine and to contemplate and to reflect and to, I mean, it, it, what this implies is taking a real interest in the present moment, you know, really opening to it, embracing it, really open wide to it, you know, and, and really uh, try to contemplate. Even if you even if you confuse yourself, you can be aware of confusion, or, or you can be aware of not knowing, you be aware of, of pain, or of breathing, or of pressure, or of heat or cold. There's always now, wherever we are, it's now. And we've got a body that's breathing and feeling now, and a mind that's thinking now, and so, uh, this, wherever we are, wherever we go, we've always got everything right with us to, in terms of the, uh, the equipment necessary uh, to be enlightened. So we, we don't have to buy any special things or, or uh, have any, anything, uh, you know, we don't, aren't lacking in anything. Well, wherever we are, and whether we're here at retreat time or in London or um, Mount Kailash or whether we're in India or whatever, the uh, traffic jam in prison, in uh, whatever, then the, if, we're, if we have this real refuge in Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, then it uh, doesn't matter so much the conditions because our refuge can never be destroyed by the by say adversity unless our refuge is not very deep it's merely an intellectual thing then it gets destroyed over little things it doesn't have any any strength to it so you you know you can it can easily be lost over just the trivialities So the truth of the way it is, uh, the all conditions are impermanent. These two lines that we chant, all Dhamma is not self. So Dhamma includes Dhamma includes the conditions, the conditions and the unconditioned. So it's a, it's a all-inclusive, includes everything and nothing and infinity and eternity and and uh, deathless reality and death reality and the whole gamut of conditioned phenomena from the most subtle to the most coarse. So Dhamma is, and we're taking refuge in Dhamma because it's 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 the totality of everything, and the the way to to take refuge in Dhamma is to know Dhamma, and then you know Dhamma through awakeness, 
through the refuge in Buddha. So this awakened state. Then you, you're not just, you know, talking about Dhamma and knowing all about Dhamma, but not knowing the Dhamma. Then the, the Sangha, the Supatipano, those who practice, those who put it into practice, those who live uh, in, the, in those who uh, are doing it, they're not just who, who've committed themselves to the Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha. Now Sangha is a group, is a community, isn't it? It's, a, it's the church, it's, the, uh, it's the, the body, the physical body, it's the, this body here, uh, human body, male, female bodies that are practicing, supatipano, practicing, uh, doing what is good, ujupatipano, directs direct uh, it is direct knowing it's it's not just uh, it's not the direct buddhism buddhist buddha and dhamma is very direct it's not kind of roundabout abstruse so taking refuge in the sangha also is is a practical refuge of of uh, you know of, of and it helps to helps to put give perspective on our own kind of individuality and sense of ourself, our egos as an individual and a personality. So we're not taking refuge in my views and my personality and in me, but in sangha. So it's it's kind of like the sangha then is. Is, is composed of many individual members but the, but the, but the oneness is through the uh, Buddha and Dhamma so it isn't a matter of, of ethnic background, racial background what gender you are or what age you are uh, or whatever, it's uh, how healthy or unhealthy you are uh, is it? It's not not based on whether you're well educated or or not, or what class you, of society you come from. It, these things are not not around. These are not uh, qualifications for sangha, but practicing direct practice, integrity, um, honesty propriety, uh, prudence, morality uh, is, the, is the quality of Sangha. So the, in terms of the external signs, you know, they have the, the Buddha Rupa, then we have the uh, Tripitaka, and we have the Bhikkhu Sangha. So you can have, in uh, traditional Theravadan countries, you, oftentimes people see the Buddha as a, as a Buddha, Buddha image. And then oftentimes they'll have a, a bookcase with the Tripitaka in it up here, and that's the Dhamma. And then they'll have a bhikkhu up on a tamat like this. And that's the Sangha. Now you see, I take refuge in the in the Buddha Rupa and in the bookcase and in the personality that's sitting up on the high seat. And <laughs> and that is uh, that is the most uh, kind of. Uh, you know, uh, superstitious view of it all. That's the giving, empowering the 
the the symbols, making the symbols a reality, which is is not what is intended. And it's uh, not intended. Uh, the Buddha never intended us to. And in fact, there weren't any Buddha rupas at the time of the Buddha, or um, books. They never wrote anything, the Buddha. But these also can be uh, the very things that remind us of our refuge. So it's uh, seeing a Buddha Rupa. Uh, in, when you see a Buddha Rupa, then we remind us of Bhutang Saranangachami. Then, then it's been quite using a Buddha Rupa very skillfully. Be awake. So you come in here into the shrine room here and you're all kind of fluttery and confused and you just got a terrible letter from somebody and and you're all uh, emotionally distraught and, and you come in here and, and and you're caught up in your own problem then look at the Buddha image and ah, wake up, pay attention. <laughs> Or just uh, it's that, it gives you a sense of, you know, use it. how you want to use a Buddha Rupa is up to you. You know, it's, you, it's not, nobody can make you. Uh, you can have views about Buddha Rupas are, are totally unnecessary. And the Buddha never had Buddha Rupas. That came later, probably some, from Hinduism. Blame Hinduism for it. And, Not use them, or you can look at them uh, in many different ways. But to me, the, the how I regard Buddha rupas is uh, is the fact that I do like them. I find them aesthetically a pleasing uh, object, and then uh, and then I love the stillness. You can see the kind of composure and stillness and it. And so, and then, then it kind of reaches me, and, I, and if I am being heedless, it helps to remind me, you know, be aware, wake up. Then Dhamma, uh, we have the Tripitaka in a bookcase, but that works in the same way. One can read it and. Investigate it and and use it, not as uh, not just to learn all about dhamma, but uh, it has it, there's uh, it helps us to look at things and 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 investigate way in ways that we would never think of if we were left to our own devices. So some of the Suttas and then the vinya. We study the vinya because we need to to learn to how to live within the structure and limitation of vinya as a as a training. And then the sangha. We can see the monastic sangha. We can see each other in terms of personality. You know, he's like that. She's like that. She's, uh, I like that nun, but I don't like that one. And that monk's really good, but that monk's nowhere. And they're only Samaneras. And then they had a guy. <laughs> and and uh, so forth. We can, we can get caught up with our own views about the, the personalities or our own emotional reactions to the individuals. That's, that's one way of just seeing it as a kind of costume we're wearing. Or maybe we're trying to be better than the rest. Sometimes people think that we put on, you know, we're trying to um, make some kind of statement against the world by becoming a samana. And we're saying we're better than the rest of you because we're, we're very moral. 
and you're not. <laughs> and we, we think you're not as moral as we are anyway. And, or something like that, holier than thou. But that, that is, uh, you know, I don't think any of us uh, have any inclination towards that one. Then, uh, but then we can also see the samana sangha as a, and when we see to see it is to remember our refuge in sankang sarnangachami as a visual visual thing. You know, it's very obvious, very powerful effect, isn't it? The shaven head and the the robes. It's a. the, you know, it has an effect. So, the Anagarika is also the, the, the Brahmacharya. That's the a collection of individual men and women with various personalities, nationalities, etc. Or as uh, Anagarikas, uh, are homeless. They've, they've left the home life for the celibate life. So this is this uh, is not as an intimidation or comment in any way on the society, but a reminder of Sankang Sarnangachami. So then we see monks and nuns and so forth, we feel a sense of, we're grateful for their presence because they remind us of, of our own refuge. So we see monks uh, whoever, whatever monks, whether they here or whether they're visiting monks, the Tibetan monks, Tibetan nuns, uh, we're not, we, we use them all for remember the Sankang Sarnangatami helps us to to contemplate, to remember that this is our refuge, not not our own view about somebody is not our refuge. My view, what I think of you as a person is not my refuge. Or my view about uh, Tibetan Buddhism or or various monks that, and traditions and that out, you know, in terms of person and personality is not my refuge. So the refuge is in Sangha, not in a particular viewpoint that I have as a Theravadan monk or as a, a, a you know, or, or trying to, you know, regard our group as somehow real Sangha and the rest not quite as much. Then it gets into snobbery and, and uh, uh, cultish uh, pettiness. So when we, that's what, I mean, if that's what the mind inclines to do, we can observe that, not, not use that as a refuge. Because the refuge is supatipano, ujupatipano, yayapatipano, samijipatipano. Then that question arises, well, we know that monk is a scoundrel. He breaks all the rules. Uh, he's, uh, He's got a terrible reputation, so I'm not going to, when I look at him, I only see, uh, I just feel angry. Don't take that as your refuge. I, <laughs> I regard, no matter what, it's not up to us to condemn and, and uh, judge the morality of any individual monk or not. That's their problem. That's their responsibility. But to use the the sign that the obvious sign for remembering Sankang Sernangachami and not to take refuge in your own emotional uh, aversion to the individual. That's quite a challenge sometimes. It brings up I remember the story I tell about living two years with this monk in Thailand that that uh, was had very kind of gross habits, and and it made me feel. I mean, he he this monk brought up a kind of uh, arrogance in me. 
because I always assumed I was so much better than he was. <laughs> and uh, because he was obviously a kind of coarse, gross, and lazy and not, you know, totally uninspiring. And I couldn't help but feel, you know, I felt I'm, I'm really a serious monk. I'm practicing hard and not like him. And, and when he came to, he was the head of the monastery, when he came to washing his feet, even the, the Thai monks, they wouldn't wash his feet anymore. Everybody thought he was terrible. And then I started looking at that in myself. And, and, you know, they, do you think you're too good to wash his feet? I started asking myself questions. Do you think you're you're so good that 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 you can't wash the feet of of that monk? And then suddenly I started thinking, <laughs> I don't like this. <laughs> I don't want to think of myself in that way as being better than somebody else. When you really make it conscious, arrogance, and make it fully conscious, it is a painful attitude to bear one's own arrogance. And uh, and then what would be the what would be the the right thing to do would be to perform one's duty to the sangha, to the senior monk, not to the individual. But then the, then the arrogant thought came, well, if I wash his feet, he's going to think that, that I, you know, he's not worthy, and he's, he's going to think that I'm bowing to him, and I want to show him that I really don't approve of him. That's arrogance. <laughs> that, that is arrogance. So it's by by that by you know it helps us to see these these kind of our own kind of self righteous uh, tendencies and our own uh, arrogant habits that we can justify in so many ways. But when you really listen to it, when you really listen to it inwardly, it is it's ugly, isn't it? To to hate somebody or to look down on somebody else. Uh, I find it, I've, I mean, I don't admire that. That's not what I want to take refuge in, is in any arrogant tendencies I happen to have. Because it's not, it's, it's a, it would be, a, it's too painful, too much suffering to take refuge in, in such a miserable thing. But in Sangha, that's something I can take refuge in. And so in this way, this refuge in Sangha helps to, to and it isn't based on, on the personal attainment of anybody or individual abilities or charisma or anything like that. It's, it's, uh, it's not, not, not being used on, on kind of me judging you whether you're worthy of my bow or my respect. And then I think you have to be worthy of my respect. That's another arrogant view. That my respect is, uh, you know, I'm only going to give it to the best. Not any old slob, and uh, you have to prove that you're worthy of it before I'll respect you. That's arrogance, isn't it? So I mean, at least that's what I I consider arrogant. So, and and so the the, the humility of the life, isn't it? Is 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 seen, you know, learning from from the way we are, not not in condemning, but listening, paying attention to the way it is. Is our arrogant attitudes are they? Do they lead to peacefulness and joy and and calm and harmony, or do they, or don't they? You know, and this you you have to 
answer for yourself. So this evening is the uh, midnight, the, the Cinderella, or is it the turn into a pumpkin? <laughs> if we don't get back by midnight. <laughs> <laughs> it's the midnight vigil. Midnight rider. <laughs> <laughs> 